This is Internet Marketing. Brought to you by Site Visibility at sitevisibility.co.uk. This is Internet Marketing. Today we've got another brain dump for you from Kelvin. This time it's technical and on-site SEO. Enjoy. My name's Kelvin Newman, and this is the Internet Marketing Podcast. In today's episode, um, I'm going to be talking you through technical and on-site optimization from an SEO perspective. Now, the reality is that search engines are trying to find the best website for a particular search query. And in order to do that, they need to understand the content and nature of what your website is about. Now, in an ideal world, they'd just be able to tell which are the best websites and the way in which it was designed and laid out wouldn't have any impact whatsoever. But too many websites don't really do a very good job of describing their product or service in a way that search engines can understand. So today I'm going to take you through some of the steps that you might want to carry out, some of the process you might want to go through in order to give your website the best possible chance of being understood by the search engines. Now, all of this is kind of built upon an understanding of your customers. If you don't understand your customers, you haven't spent the time to research them to understand the types of search queries that they're making. None of this really matters. You need that foundation of understanding of your customers in order to do well with you know, any kind of technical or on-site optimization. But providing you've got that, let's take you through the steps, some of the things you'd want to think about in order to do well. So the first thing I recommend doing is that there is resources that Google provide. There is a a feedback process that they have in order to share information with you as a person who runs a website on what they think of your website. Now, for a long time, that was known as Google Webmaster Tools. In fact, I'm finding it very hard to break out of the habit of calling it Google Webmaster Tools. So sorry if, as I go through today's podcast, I refer to it as Google Webmaster Tools. In fact, it's now known as Search Console. But if you search for Google Webmaster Tools, it'll still come up. If you search for Search Console, it'll still come up. Now, what this allows you to do is essentially it's a sort of a private communication channel, a private feedback channel that Google provide in order to share information with people who they know are verified owners of websites. So in order to gain access to this, you need A, a Google account and B, the process of verification taking place. So there's a couple of ways that verification can take place. One is kind of quite easy using, if you're using Google Analytics, you can kind of, you know, confirm that if you've got the Google Analytics code on a website, you have access to that Google Analytics code on that website. They will also give you access to Webmaster Tools or Search Console, as it's now known. Uh, Additionally, you can add a little bit of code to a page on your website or upload a particular um, HTML file as well. And they're all just kind of to prove that you have kind of control of the website. And once you've got that, they give you access to this kind of feedback system. So it'll tell you all kinds of things. So they can send you messages through this. And that's where um, if you're at all concerned that you might have a penalty associated with your website, this is where you'd go to look. This is where you'd go to find out if you have a penalty, you'd have a message there from Google informing you of that. And can also tell you about kind of fundamental technical issues that you might have with your website. So I'm going to go through a lot more things that you might want to change on your website in order to better um, optimize your website for natural search. But in many cases, the first thing you need to do is to set up Google Webmaster Tools or Search Console um, and go through what it tells you, right? So go through and see all of the errors, all of the issues, all of the concerns that Google will tell you about. 
Now, in many cases, some of them will overlap with the things I'm going to talk about in, you know, the next sort of 20 minutes or so. But this, you know, feedback straight from the horse's mouth, straight from Google is certainly the first place that I'd recommend you start. And the good news is that it's kind of quite well documented as well, the advice that they provide in here. So what that allows you to do, if you're kind of a business owner, um, you're not an SEO by, you know, by trade or that's not kind of your instinct, um, you can set this up, get the reports, get the recommendations that are in there and almost pass them straight onto your web developer. And if you get all of the things right in Webmaster Tools, that doesn't solve all of the problems, uh, but certainly you'd be a, a good way on the track to making sure that you've got a well-optimized website. So particular things that I find interesting that are worth looking for there is issues around duplication of content, issues around if you've got pages that are returning 404s and all of that type of stuff. So definitely worth spending some time doing that. And almost that's got to be your first thing you need to do. Now, another big question around technical SEO comes into kind of localization. So the country... um, If you're targeting a particular country, you want to send a signal to Google and the other search engines that you are based in that country. Now, the the strongest signal that you can send to them is by using the specific domain name for that country. So that would be .co.uk in the UK or .de in Germany or .fr in France and all of those extensions that you've got. Now, that domain extension overrides anything else that happens after that. So if you're only targeting one country, you're not an international business, you have no aspirations to be an international business, you can't go too far wrong with choosing the correct country domain name because that will send a you know a crystal clear message to the search engine that that's the countries that you're targeting. However, if you've gone for a .com because you have, it feels sensible, they then look for a second indicator of which country your website is based upon. And that's kind of where your hosting is. So... Each host, each you know web host where your website essentially lives has an IP address. And that IP address ties that machine to a particular location. And the location of that IP address is an indicator to the search engines that that's where your you know, business is located. Now, they don't think that that's where your like, offices are. They don't think that that's where you're, you know, you're sat at your desk. But there's an assumption by the search engines if you use an international domain name the location of your hosting is a good signal of where your business is targeting. Now, why is that a problem? Well, many hosting companies have IP addresses outside the country of their customers. So if you've got a .com, that's saying you're an international website. So Google go, okay, well, I'm going to look for where the hosting is. And if your hosting says you're in the States, but you're actually in the UK, only targeting UK customers, that can be confusing for the search engines. So if you have the ability to kind of specify that you want a UK IP address, you should do that, particularly if you've got a .com um, domain name or a .net or any kind of these international domain names. And just kind of bear that in mind when you're choosing your hosting. But if you have a .com, you can't for various reasons. Maybe your hosting is managed by your head office, which is in the States. So you can't um, choose a UK IP address. You can then go into Webmaster Tools or Search Console and specify that... That's where you're located. But that doesn't help you with the other search engines, though Bing do have their webmaster tools as well. So kind of the from a search engine perspective, first they look at your domain name, then they look at your hosting, then they look for what you've got in webmaster tools. So best case is always go with the um, country you're targeting, unless there's a kind of a broader international strategy that you're approaching. Now, that's okay for simple websites, but in many cases you might have multiple versions of your website 
they're targeting different countries and different languages. If that's the case, there's a great bit of markup out there that helps you indicate to the search engines where different variations of your content are for different languages and different countries. So that's known as hreflang. We could probably do a whole episode on hreflang in its own right, um, but I'm just going to kind of cover it briefly. So if you assume that you have an English language page hosted at, I don't know, example.com, and then you might have a Spanish alternative for that at .es.example.com, well, you could indicate to Google that the Spanish URL is the Spanish language equivalent of the English page in one of three different ways. This is all using the hreflang um, process, but you can indicate it in three different ways. So one is that you put a little bit of HTML in your header, um, the head tag of your HTML, sorry, um, which would then kind of link to the alternative version. So that would mean that every page of your website, you link to the alternative version in the head of the HTML. That can work quite well. Um, you can do it in the HTTP header. Um, so if you're publishing non-HTML files like PDFs, you can do that using the HTTP header. That's a little bit more clunky. So I'd, it works for non-HTML um, files and then you've got the sitemap as well so you can use your sitemap so you can have a language version of your the language information in your sitemap now the sitemap approach is the easiest to implement uh, because you don't need to make changes to every page of your website you just change the sitemap but from my experience the um, putting it in the html head is the most reliable um, don't do both is the advice that I've received because it can get, you can, you know, even with the best will in the world, you can end up with conflict and that conflict can cause more problems than it solves. So that's hreflang. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, but if you are an international business with multiple language variations targeting multiple countries, look into hreflang. There's some reasonably good documentation out there about that. Um, not amazing though. Um, it doesn't cover all of the edge cases, but there is a solution if you're finding that you're, you know, the wrong countries appearing in the search results for, for your business. So I sort of alluded there to sitemaps as well. So, um, you know, a few episodes back, we talked about that if you're not in the index itself, you're never going to get, you never, you can't rank, right? If you're not in the index, you can't rank. So one of the biggest challenges, um, you know, for the search engine spiders who are going off to find the, you know, the pages that they might want to return is finding all of the pages of your site. Now, ideally, from a kind of information architecture point of view the, uh, and a search perspective, you'd want almost every single page of your site to only be a few clicks away from the home page. So you've kind of got a, a like a fat and flat information architecture is one way of describing it. So you could almost have kind of a very vertical hierarchy where you can only get to one page by clicking on 20 other pages. That's not particularly good from a search perspective. And I also tend to find that's not so good from a usability perspective. So I'm a big fan of these kind of fat and flat architectures where, you know, most of the most important pages of your site are only a few clicks away from the homepage. So that's kind of a broader one, though. So if you've already got a website in place, um, it's not easy to start changing that information architecture. So then you move on to what's known as sitemaps. So sitemaps are typically an XML format file. Um, so that's kind of a particular type of encoding that allows you to send a list to the search engines of all of the pages of your website and provide some information about those pages to the website, so uh, to, to Google. So sort of like about update frequency, for example. So what you would need to do is essentially create a file in this XML format, upload that to your website, then inform the search engines of the location of that sitemap and say, hey, Google, here's a list of all of the pages of my website. Um, hopefully this will help you find all of them. Now, 
that is an incredibly sensible thing to do. It's almost always one of the action points that I recommend for people if I'm carrying out an audit. But there's an important caveat to remember here. So if you search for like XML sitemap generator, there's a huge number of tools out there, many of them free, which will generate an XML sitemap for you. I don't recommend them. And I don't recommend them for a very clear reason because they mimic the behavior of the search spiders. So if you use a tool like that, where you kind of you plug in your website and it gives you an XML sitemap out of that, what they're doing is mimicking what the spiders just did, what the spiders would look to do. Now, that's not a good thing for a couple of reasons. One is actually the pages that you most want on the XML sitemap are those that are the hardest to find in your structure. Um, so that's not ideal. And additionally, those types of tools, if you do have issues where you've got URLs pointing to different duplicate issues and all of that type of thing, it's just going to exacerbate that problem. So ideally, you want an XML sitemap that's generated by your content management system. So there's plugins for WordPress and Drupal and um, you know most of the major content management systems that will do that for you. That's the other sitemap you want to be uploading. And even so, even with those ones that are generating... Um, you still want to kind of sense check that to try and understand if it's generating the pages that you want it to generate. Because actually, if you put an XML sitemap in that compounds a um, issue that you've got with your URL structure, um, you can create more problems than yourself. So I'm starting to get a bit more into the detail here. But XML sitemaps generally really, really good if not all of your pages are getting indexed. However, they're not kind of a, a necessarily a perfect solution to the problem. And sometimes they can create more problems than they solve. So kind of go in, you know, buyer beware. So I talked there about duplication. So this is kind of this, you know, Google Webmaster Tools or, you know, Search Console as it's now known, um, will give you warnings for duplicate content. So that's one of the reasons I definitely recommend going in and, and you know, setting that up. But a very common problem for websites is where they might have identical or near identical pages on two or three or four different URLs. So that can cause issues for the search engine. So say you've got, I don't know, five pages on your website about holidays in Sardinia that are targeting that as a phrase. Then the search engine doesn't know when someone searches for holidays in Sardinia, which page on your website to return. Ambiguity is kind of really the opposite of what the search engines want, right? They want certainty about which page of your website is the best one. So we could do a whole episode just on duplication in its own right, but to kind of cover that briefly, what you want to do is try, if you have a page, make sure it's only available on one URL. That's the most common one where a page is available on multiple different URLs. Try and only have it on one. If you have had duplicate pages, make sure that you redirect the old duplicate versions to the correct version of the page. And if you have more complex issues, there's what's known as the rel canaconical. I can never pronounce that right. The rel canaconical tag, um, which helps you kind of manage duplication where the duplication is essential for another reason. So let me explain that in a bit more detail. So suppose you want, um, I don't know, blog.example.com forward slash dresses forward slash green hyphen dresses hyphen r hyphen awesome to be the preferred URL but maybe the content that's on that page can be found on a bunch of other URLs. You can indicate to the search engines using this tag, you know, that which is the, you know, canaconical, um, you know, the, the original and correct canon version of that page using rel canaconical. So it indicates the preferred URL that you would want them to access that page on. So hopefully prevents 
those other duplicate pages impacting the ability of that page to rank. Because if you didn't have that, you then got Google getting confused about which is your best page about green dresses. So yeah, whistle stop version there, really good documentation of that in Webmaster Tools in the Webmaster forums that they've got there on Google. But be aware if you've got this duplication issue, if you're aware of a duplication issue, that can solve some of that. Now, another big problem from a technical SEO perspective is blocked content or pages. Now, this isn't super common, but it is super dramatic when it does occur. So it's possible for you to block content from your website from appearing in the search index, right? So you say, I don't want this page of my website to appear in the search index. So you can do that using the robots.txt file. So that's a file you upload to your, you know, to your server that the search engineers will look at and it gives them a list of where they can't go, where they can go, where they can't go. So you can use that to prevent um, pages being indexed. On each individual page, you could add a robots meta tag. So if Google do find it, you can say, no, don't, don't include this page. And also if you're using a PHP server, you can do it a bit using HT access as well. Now, there will be situations where you might want to block a certain area of your site to the search engines. Maybe if it's a duplicate, you know, you, you, we just talked about duplication, you might want to block a whole area for that site. But the reason I mention this is because there is one situation where it, you can have particular problems with this. So say you're working on a site redesign and sensibly when you're redesigning the new website, you've got it on a test server. Maybe it's password protected, maybe it's not, but you know, you've got it hidden away somewhere and you've set on that test server, I don't want the search engines to find this test server, this test version of our site, which is a very, very sensible approach to take to block the search engines to, you know, the work in progress. But what can happen is when you migrate that test version to the live version of your server, it does occasionally happen where people leave those tags there. So what that then means is that when you launch your new website, Google come back to your website and get told, sorry, you're not allowed to index this page, Google, please go away. And that can have a dramatic impact. Now, I've only made that mistake once in my life, but trust me, I won't be making it again. So be aware that that can happen. URL and folder structure is something that you really do need to bear in mind from a technical SEO perspective. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is the the way in which you name, the naming conventions that you use for the pages and folders of your site are used by the search engines to understand the content of those folders and pages. So you want them to be descriptive. So generally speaking, you're always better to use words than numbers. So I'm not a big fan of numbers in um, URLs other than at the product level, right? So maybe a product might be, you know, the 78291, but never for categories, never for folders, always use words for folders and subcategories. And even at the product page, it's good to have some words as well as the number. And you want them to reflect the content and ideally also the words that people are searching for. So if you've carried out your keyword research, then think about what you could call your folders and pages based upon that. And generally, um, a common problem can be where people are using an unnecessarily complicated folder structure for their website. If you don't need a folder, don't include it, right? So um, it, this doesn't happen as often as it used to, but for a long time, it'd be very common for uh, you'd have domain.com forward slash website. Then every page of the website was in the website folder. There were no pages that weren't in that folder. So that, that's a redundant folder. 
So that redundant folder sort of sends a signal to the search engines that this page is less important than it could be. So when you're thinking about the URLs of your most important pages, look at them and go, is this describing the content of that page? Is it saying to the search engines that this is an important page? If it's too buried away in a folder structure, you're saying to the search engines, this is less important. Now, of course, as we talked about, you know, with the information architecture, that the, the better linked to the pages is, are internally, that also sends a signal that a page is important. But the URL structure is a part of that kind of assessment of popularity, assessment of importance as well. One of the most common pieces of work that um, is conducted as a result of some technical on-site SEO optimization is optimization of the title tags. So the title tag is an sorry, the title tag is an HTML element um, to a page that is displayed in two particular locations. So it's displayed in the tab of the browser. So if, you're, if you've got your browser open and there's that little bit of, you know, the tabs there and there's that little bit of text that appears next to the tab, um, that's your title tag. I used to kind of, if you've used the internet for a long time, it'd be when you didn't have tab browsers and each browser had its own window, that would be what would be the sort of text in the, the blue bar at the top as it used to be. So that's one place that your title tag appears. Um, but it also appears as the blue clickable link in a natural search um, results listing. So when your website appears on a natural search results listing, you will find that the blue text is the title tag for that page. Now, these are one of the strongest opportunities you've got to tell the search engines what the content of that page is. So because it's one of the strongest opportunities that you've got to send the search engines this signal, it's one you will want to reflect the keywords that people are targeting. So when you've carried out your keyword research, you understand that people describe a product or service you sell in a certain way, you should reflect that in your title tags. So for your homepage, you want to include the most important key phrases, the most important search queries that you're targeting. But for individual products or category pages, you want to go, actually, how do I reflect that someone who's looking to buy this product, how would they describe it? You don't necessarily want your title tags to just conform to your naming conventions. You want them to reflect the naming conventions of your customers. Now, when writing the title tags, you almost want, you want every page to be different. Um, that's a mistake that I see quite frequently, where every page of a site has the same title tags. And that would be a bit like if you imagine a filing cabinet where every you know hanging folder you had in there was called folder. That would be really hard to find things if everything was called folder. So you want to vary them. Um, so every page should have a unique title tag. Um, you've got 66 characters on average to play with, and that includes the spaces. So when you're writing your title tags, if it's under 50 characters long, that's too long. It needs to be 66, and those 66 include any spaces, any hyphens, any you know um, pipes or anything you're using to divide them as well. And there's no need to repeat keywords as well, but do try and reflect the order of your top keywords. So you don't need to put the word, you know, if you're targeting, you know, Sardinian holidays, you don't need to put holidays in Sardinia, um, Sardinian holidays, you know, you're repeating yourself. What you want to do is put one word in there once, but try and reflect the way in which the language that your customers are using, reflect their language, reflect their search queries, and then you start to optimize that page for that query. Now, there's another bit of HTML code that you edit that can be quite important from a search perspective, and that's the meta description tag. Now, the meta description tag doesn't appear when you view the page, it's sort of behind the scenes, but it does appear on those search engine results pages. 
So a typical search engine results page is made up of um, three things from a natural search perspective. You've got the title tag, so that's the blue clickable link. You've got the page, the URL, which is normally in green. And then you've got like two lines of text, which is normally in black. Now, if you haven't declared a meta description tag, Google will just pull a snippet of the page and you have no control over what that snippet is. But if you do set a meta description, then you do have some element of control over what that text is and how that appears. Now, you have to have the word or phrase in there for that meta description to trigger, right? So if someone searched for a particular query and that isn't in your meta description, then they will just pull the snippet anyway. So your meta descriptions really do need to reflect what you think would be the main keywords for that, that, you know, that page. Now, you've got a bit more space to play with than the title tag. You've got 150 characters there. So that tends to equal about sort of one or two readable sentences. And when you're writing that meta description out for each of these pages, again, you want them to be unique. You might use patterns, you know, rules and um, and kind of formulas to write them, but you do need them to be unique. Um, I try and do a few different things when I'm writing a meta description. So I try to repeat the title tag. So we've got some consistency there. And also that means there's a good likelihood that I've got the keywords there. So I want almost every word that's in my title tag to be in the meta description, not necessarily in the same order, but every word I want to tick them all off. I also like to mention the brand name because sometimes I remove the brand name from the title tag. The brand name is not always necessary in the title tag, but I always want it in my meta description. And I also want to form it as a call to action. So maybe it's click now to get or buy from us or whatever it is. Use a good verb, right? So think about that as a advert call to action because that's what it is essentially. Then finally, I want to talk about, well, can I try and squeeze in your USP or what makes you special? If you do free delivery, put that in your meta description. If you offer a money back guarantee, put that in your meta description because this is your chance to sell yourself. Now, you always want to have the best performance on the SERPs that you can to rank as high as you possibly can, but sometimes you won't rank as high as you'd want. So you want to use all you can to encourage when you are in a position that's lower than you'd like to get more clicks than you deserve, right? If you've got a really good meta description, you'll catch people's eye, they'll click through to your website, and you'll get more clicks through to your website than you would typically get in that search position. And that's a good mentality to have. So you're not just thinking about how do I rank more highly on the search results page. You're thinking about when I do rank, how do I get more people through to my website? Because that's equally important as well. So as an aside here, um, you may have heard of the idea of the meta keywords tag. Now, a lot of content management systems still allow you to edit the meta keywords tag. Now, the meta keywords tag has no role to play in SEO. Not anymore. A long time ago, very important. Nowadays, Google do not look at it and Bing do look at it, but it, they don't use it as a data point to influence their search results. So meta keywords, not that important at all. Now, really important to distinguish between meta keywords, the tag that you can edit and your keyword research. So the phrases that you're targeting, the research, so important. Probably one of the most important things you can do in SEO. The meta keywords tag, not important. So that distinction between the two, really, really, hopefully you can understand that the tag, don't worry too much about that. The process, really important. Now you might want to use them maybe for housekeeping. So I've heard arguments that you could use the meta keywords to remind you of the phrase you optimize that page for. So it might be worth doing from that perspective. Another area that can be worthwhile spending some time on 
from an SEO, a technical SEO perspective, is the headings that you use on your page. So if you use Word a lot, you'll be very familiar with like heading one, heading two, heading three, which gives your document a kind of visual hierarchy that helps you and anyone who's reading your Word documents to understand what the document's about, what sections of the documents are about. Now, there's also an HTML equivalent of that. So they're called as H1. So what would be a heading one in the Word document would be an H1 in HTML. So that can be another opportunity to really give prominence to, you know, words or phrases that you're targeting. So really, you want an H1 that um, reflects what's in your title tag and what's in your meta description and what's in the URL. So really, we're looking for consistency, right? Because we know that the search engine's enemy is ambiguity, right? If we can remove the ambiguity of the content of a page, you've got a greater likelihood of ranking for that query. So I want to make sure that my if I have a headline on the page, it reflects my keywords. If I have a headline on the page, it's given H1 status. Because it's possible to give a headline, um, you make it bold, you make it bigger. The search engines are looking for that particular H1 status or that particular H2 status. So try and use these. And they're useful for a couple of reasons. One, because the search engines understand that something that's H1, oh, well, that's important. Whereas something that's bold, 72 point, and they might think that's important, but there's some, again, ambiguity there. And also, it's kind of semantic markup, right? It's it's It helps any other person. If you ever want to change something on your website, you suddenly decide you want to change your fonts, using that, you know, agreed markup format like heading tags makes your life so much easier and never forget that you actually need the the words in the body content as well right so you've gone through this process you've maybe written some good title tags written some good meta descriptions altered altered the heading tag then make sure that those queries that you're targeting are in the body content now don't worry about keyword density or anything like that but you do want to make sure that if you want a page to rank for holidays in sardinia somewhere on your page about holidays in sardinia you actually have that phrase in that order right that helps the search engine understand and you might go oh yeah kelvin that's really obvious of course i'm going to do that you'd be surprised how often someone might write it like that then it goes through a bit of copy editing and proofing and then it comes out the other side and it's not in the same way it was so and that's not criticism of anyone doing the editing right if they didn't know that you were specifically using that word or phrase in that order for a particular reason i.e to target that search query sometimes search queries are a bit clunky right it might not be the way in which you'd naturally describe that product or service or certainly the way that a gifted writer would so what you need to do is kind of make sure that if i'm targeting a word or phrase do i use it in the body content do i use it in that sequence Something else that people often edit when doing technical SEO, when optimizing their website, is the alt tags, right? So these are the alternative text description that an image has. Um, And this can be important for a couple of reasons. One, like if you've got screen readers, so if you've got customers of yours who are blind, who are using screen readers to navigate your website, the alt text, the alt tag text of an image helps them understand what that image is about. But also it's used by the image search engines to understand what images are about. Now, for us as people, we look at an image and instantly can see if it's a cat or a dog or a product or whatever it is. Search engines historically haven't been able to do that. They're working on a lot of technology at the moment that's proving quite exciting about being able to determine what an image contains, you know, machine learning to find that out. But at the moment, they just don't know that at scale. So the only way they can understand what an image contains, what the image is of, is the way in which you describe it using words. And alt text and the file name are the two things they look at. So when you're uploading an image to your website, 
Again, try and use the words in the file name to reflect what it's about. So if it's an image of a microphone, say it's microphone and it's the road, whatever it is, you know, use that in the file um, name, but also use it in the alt text. Now that won't help your normal pages rank for those search queries, but you might find that your images start to appear in image search, which can lead to more traffic coming through to your website as well. Now, one of the big opportunities that many people miss when optimizing their website is the opportunity to get rich snippets. So rich snippets are where Google are pulling through information from your website and presenting it in slightly interesting and new ways. So probably the most common of this is like the star review rating. You'll probably be very familiar with that. Well, these star review ratings are appearing because those websites, which are getting the star review ratings in the natural search results have marked up their content in a way that the search engines can understand, right? So in the same way search engines can't necessarily understand um, what an image contains, if we see a string of numbers that are about the right length, we would know that that's a phone number. A search engine wouldn't. So there's a format you can use to kind of mark up your content to say, this is a phone number, this is a review rating, this is how many minutes it takes to cook a recipe, And the search engines understand that. So this is known as schema. So it's an advanced form of structured markup approved by all the search engines to help them understand what your page is about. So it allows you to do things like say this string of numbers is a phone number or this number is a score out of five for a review and they can then get pulled through into the search results pages. So definitely check out schema.org and see if there's an opportunity to do some advanced markup of your content to ensure that your website, when it does appear in the search results, gets some of these advanced features. Because these advanced features draw the eye, get more clicks, and ultimately make you a little bit more money. Now, my final sort of technical on-site optimization recommendation is a bit of a strange one because it doesn't have a direct impact on SEO. But I think it's really, really important because once you've been through this process that we've just talked about, you will potentially be making some changes to the code of your site. Now, if you're doing that, I thoroughly recommend taking the time to implement Facebook's open graph markup, which again, a bit like the schema markup, allows you to send information to Facebook in this instance about what your page is about. And also when it's shared on Facebook, when someone takes a page of your website and shares it on Facebook, what it should look like. So it allows you to do things like when someone does share your content on Facebook, which image do they use? Which headline do they use? And they don't have to match up with what the page says. So you can have one headline on the page, but a different headline that you use when someone shares it on Facebook. So that's Facebook Open Graph. That won't directly impact your SEO, but because, and we'll cover this in more detail in an upcoming podcast, because social and search are so closely linked, you want to do all you possibly can to ensure that people are sharing your content socially. And one of the ways you want to do that is when they do make the decision to share your content, you want to look as good as you possibly can make it. And Open Graph gives you the control, the influence to do that. So there's just a few of the ways in which you might optimize your website from a technical perspective. Now, technical SEO can be very detailed, very in-depth, and there can be lots of edge cases. The process you would do to optimize an e-commerce website might be very different from a job board, which might be very different from a professional services company, which would be very different from a marketing agency. But hopefully here we've covered some of the fundamentals. If you get all of these things right, I think you're on track to have a relatively good natural search performance. So definitely install Webmaster Tools, Google Search Console, and understand what Google is saying about your website. 
Also take the time to understand the structure of your website. Does it send a clear signal to the search engines about the hierarchy of your pages? Which are those that are most important? Then take the time for your most important pages to edit them. Edit them in a way that reflects the ways in which your customers are describing your product or service using that keyword research. If you get those things right, you're in a good place. Lots of people in um, SEO tend to focus on link building, right? All I need to rank better is to get more links or to get more mentions. And that is very important. We're going to talk about that in more detail in future podcast episodes. But actually, I think for most businesses, they're missing a trick. They've not got all their on-site SEO sorted. Get that sorted and I can guarantee you, your website's going to do much better in the natural search listings. So take the time, you know, understand what you need, make some edits, reflect what people are searching for, and you'll be really well placed. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Sitevisibility.com forward slash IM podcast is where you can find the show notes. We're on Stitcher, we're on iTunes. And if you want to contact us, the email is podcast at sitevisibility.co.uk and the telephone hotline for questions and comments, plus 44-1273-256-150. So that's all from me and Kelvin, and we'll see you next time on Internet Marketing. What's new in podcasting? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being completely straight mm-hmm. and 10 being completely gay, what number are you? Um, you know, I don't think that you should rank how gay they are. I guess, I, and you know, that's just a little of a red, just a flag for me. Come on, come out. A weekly podcast where real lesbians tell their real coming out stories. You can find Come On, Come Out on your favorite podcatcher out now. Go listen. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.